I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Hello, and welcome to the show. I'm so grateful that you are here listening to Once Upon a Gene. I'm your host, Effie Parks. Do make sure and check out our recent episode of the talk show version of this little baby right here on the Disorder Channel. It's hosted with two of my favorite advocates, Bo Bigelow and Daniel DeFabio. It's always a fun time, and we look to share useful takeaways, and we always end with laughter. You can download the Disorder Channel on Roku or Amazon Fire to experience all the rare disease films and everything they offer. It's such a great resource. Today, I'm talking with one interesting and super smart dude. He's the co-founder and CEO of Medellis Labs in Canada, whose mission is to rapidly advance personalized drug discovery for rare genetic diseases. Being exposed firsthand to research into rare diseases, he saw the lack of information known about them and quickly realized the need to streamline the process of translating genetic data into therapeutic discoveries. So get a piece of paper and a pen, maybe. And please enjoy my conversation with James Doyle. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating. And sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hi, James Doyle. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Effie. Good afternoon. How's everything going today? Mm, it's it's fantastic. I can smell summer coming, so I have some pep in my step. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, here it's. Uh, I, I've, I've been working outside a little bit today. It's a beautiful sunny day here, so I had to move it inside for this recording. But before that, and I think right after this, I'm going to head right back outside with a little bit of background noise. So trying to enjoy this as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Well, we're all thankful for you coming inside. Thank you for that sound quality. We were chatting before we recorded that we have been trying to have this interview for eight months because you were just about to have a little baby when we met. And now you have a fat little long eight month old and we're making it happen. So in rare time, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, ab absolutely. Absolutely. It only took us eight months to set this up. Finally, we've been in talks about this, but between uh, parenthood and things that come up at the last minute, things got pushed around. But I'm finally, yeah, I'm really glad that we're finally able to to sit down and do this. Yes. Well, I'm looking forward to you breaking down some really complicated but exciting science to me. So, James, can you please share your background, where you work, and perhaps what drew you to this? I'm a scientist by training, but an entrepreneur by spirit. And that's usually how I like to, to describe myself. My background really comes in molecular genetics, which is just a fancy way of saying that I like to understand how genes work, what, what do genes do in a normal context, and importantly, what, how do mutations in genes influence that function and then lead to a disease state. And so my background, I did my PhD using these small animal models uh, called worms, these C. elegans nematodes, to study these genes functionally and to better understand what they do. 
And my supervisor at the time, uh, Dr. Alex Parker at the University of Montreal, in parallel to some of the work I was doing, was working on a large-scale drug screening project with some collaborators across the country in Canada to identify therapies for ALS using these small worms, these tiny little nematodes. And it seemed like a pretty crazy idea at the time. I mean, using worms to find therapies for ALS. ALS is an absolutely devastating neuromuscular disorder. This crazy idea was if you can find therapies that made sick worms better, could they also make human patients better again? And so even though it seemed like a very crazy idea, he, he went through it with some collaborators and identified a drug called Pimazide, which is an antipsychotic that's been around for about 50 years and found out that it actually worked pretty well in ALS worm models, uh, tested that drug in fish, in mice, and then that eventually went into a 25-patient clinical trial uh, up here in Canada, which was successful and is now in a phase 2B 100 patient trial across across the country. So really, I mean, going from worms all the way to humans in, in purely translational drug discovery and kind of being on the sidelines and seeing this and working, being getting a little bit more exposed to rare disorders through my own work, I really quickly rapidly saw the impact that this drug screening approach could have on rare disorders more broadly. So myself, along with, well, along with my supervisor, Alex, and another colleague, we founded Modellus, uh, which is a biotech company that does drug screening and that does translational, purely translational drug discovery for rare genetic disorders using these small animal models to, to accelerate the process. That's super cool. And I love getting a success story right off the bat. That's awesome. Can you break down what you mean exactly by translational drug discovery? So one definition of the word is, is probably not sufficient because some people have different meanings to it. But as we see it, it's, it's, the, it's the classical bench to bedside approach. And I'm sure you've heard that. So, so taking findings from a lab and taking those findings out, basically out of the lab and into a clinical setting, so into a real world setting. So this, this bench to bedside, taking discoveries that we identify in the lab and moving them out to patients to, to the bedside where it can have a real world impact. Cool. So can you kind of break it down, the step-by-steps of what happens when a patient organization or an advocacy group signs up to do this? Can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, very first step, and we've, we, we have a number of partners in the space right now at, who are really eager to, to work with on, on a number of different drug discovery projects spanning a couple of rare disorders. And, and the way it typically works is there's a very, we have an initial feasibility study. So what is the genetic feasibility of this disease with these small animal models like, like worms and fish? And can, basically, can it be done? Is that disease or is that gene a good candidate for these animal models? And once that's out of the way, we can make essentially avatars of those patients of, or I should say, we can make genetic avatars of patients in these worms. So based, so using genetic engineering techniques like CRISPR-Cas9 to mimic patient-specific disease-causing mutations in these animals. So we have animals that have the exact same genetic change as the human patients do, and we can study these animals, so phenotype them, identify, use them to better study the disorder, better understand the underlying causes of the disease, but then to also use them for drug screening. And so we typically do high-throughput in vivo phenotypic drug screening. So as I'm sure you've heard before, as I'm sure some audience members know, drug screening is usually done at, at a large scale. It's usually done using cell-based models or in vitro models, things like iPSCs or fibroblasts. And while you can do a huge number of drugs in, in those models, uh, it, it's a bit of an artificial model to study drugs because you're looking at cells that are exactly the same in a dish and in a plastic dish surrounded by cells that are 
exactly the same, doesn't really offer the same biological complexity as a human or as, as an animal model. And that's why there's, and, and that's one of the reasons why we think that there's a lot, that there's little translation or, or there, there's a lot of difficulties in, in translating drugs from some of the cell-based models to, to larger, larger animal systems. And so we screen directly in vivo. So we screen directly in these, and these worm avatars that, that we, we generate to rapidly identify drugs that are effective in vivo. So yes, they are worms, but we have to remember these are animals. They're a very simple, multicellular living animal, and they have a complete nervous system. They have muscles, they have intestines, like all working together. These, these little worms crawl on plates, eat bacteria, and even have periods of rest. There's a lot of similarity between, between how worms and humans function. And ultimately, if you look at a worm cell and a human cell next to each other under a microscope, they're virtually indistinguishable because they're basically the same, like they function in the same way. So using these worms to rapidly identify drugs that are effective in an in vivo context is an incredibly powerful way to, to identify drugs that have high translational potential. And worms is usually kind of the first step of the process where we first identify some potential hit drugs or potential candidate molecules. Um, and then the next step is validating them in zebrafish. And so from the zebrafish model, which we generate using roughly the, the same approach where we generate uh, these avatars, uh, patient avatars in zebrafish, we can then validate the the hit drugs that we use in uh, that that we identified in worms. So so taking a funnel approach of worms, identifying the best ones and moving those on to to zebrafish, the the next stage in the funnel allows us to to further validate those drugs in a in a vertebrate model, and again very rapidly gather data on their efficacy, their in vivo efficacy, uh, but also on but also getting high important information on a drug's bioavailability and also its safety and toxicity profile. So using this in vivo approach, we're able to rapidly rapidly identify drugs that are safe, effective, or I should say non-toxic, effective, and bioavailable, and that have a high translational potential. The way we approach drug discovery is that we take a phenotype-based approach as opposed to a target-based approach. So as you know, like rare diseases are incredibly complex and sometimes and traditional target-based approaches for drug discovery require you to know a lot of information about the underlying causes of the disease. You know, what are the affected pathways? What are potential therapeutic targets? And that can really slow down the drug discovery process because what if the hypothesis on your target is not, is not correct? Well, then you're investing a lot of time and effort into developing a into developing a drug for something that, that might not work. Whereas the approach we take by screening very broadly phenotypically, we first identify the drugs that help make the animals better. So we first identify the drugs that, that are effective in vivo at restoring the disease-related phenotypes in these animals. And once we identify those hits, we can work our way back to identify how they actually function. So what are these drugs doing? Why are these drugs making these animals better? And that allows us to, to work our way back and identify the mechanisms of action or the targets that, that these drugs are, are engaging. And that obviously gives important information, not only in how the drugs are working, but also, but also how are those pathways relevant to the disease. So we don't need to know a lot of information upfront about the disorder, about the pathways, about you know, potential targets. We identify, we let the biology tell us what works and what doesn't work. And then we can work our way back to, to, to figure out how and why are those working. Oof, I got to give myself a pat on my back because I followed you the whole time <laughs> there. Like, I love learning about this. It, it's really cool. And I know some very highly motivated parents and advocacy groups are super nerdy and into this and find it super fascinating. I also know why worms are close to people because I know a couple that remind me of you. <laughs> okay, so you're testing 
in worms, you're validating in fish, and are you required to confirm in like rodents and mice and larger animals? And why do you have to do it in three different sets? Yeah, so that that's a, a really good question. And so the worm and fish stages are, are pretty standardized in this process. It's then what happens after, say, the fish stage where things become very dependent and very customized based on what is the nature of the condition and what is the uh, what does the regulatory landscape look like? And importantly, what are our hit molecules? What what hit drugs are they? Um, and what are the drugs which are actually working? So obviously, with rare disorders, there are a number of accelerated regulatory pathways that are of, that are open uh, by the the regulatory agencies such as the FDA and the EMA that do allow for for accelerated approval of some of these rare disease drugs. But importantly, we're also a lot of the drugs in our library are repurposable drugs, so drugs that we're looking to find new uses for in the rare disease space. Uh, or I should say that we're looking to find new indications for rare disorders. And I know that topic has come up before on, on the show, especially in the interview with uh, David Fashenbaum, who's um, obviously a perfect example of drug repurposing for a rare disorder. And so that having all that, that information allows us to, to, to then identify what are the next steps to get that drug from bench to bedside. So how do we move from, say, a fish to, uh, to a, human, a human patient? You know, best case scenario is a repurposed drug with an established safety profile that we're looking to repurpose for a rare pediatric condition with an unmet medical need. The, the regulatory barrier is much lower than, say, going in with a brand new chemical entity, which which you do not have any kind of safety or, or toxicity information to, to base yourself on. So the final steps or, yeah, the, the final translational steps are determined by a lot of the upfront information which we which we identify in the worm and fish stage. So again, if we have a purely repurposed drug, well, you know, we might not need to go into a mouse model or a rodent model. We might need to just show some efficacy in fibroblasts to show target engagement or to show pathway activation before moving forward to to regulatory to a yeah to a regulatory translation. Uh, whereas something with a brand new chemical entity or something where there where the therapeutic space is is a bit more crowded, then we might need to go to through a mouse model or a rodent model to to validate those drugs. So I didn't know that all drugs weren't repurposable, first of all. And that's what you're doing at Modellus, right? Like you're taking drugs that are already there and identifying what they could help target. Exactly. Like there's thousands of drugs out there and thousands of approved therapies out there. And every one of those drugs, yes, they they have a main mechanism of action. Like they're, they're known to do one thing, but very rarely do drugs do just that one thing. And oftentimes, a lot of these molecules act on a number of different receptors or a number of different pathways. And playing with the concentration might might affect how, you know, might affect the drug act preferentially acting on one pathway versus a different pathway. And so it's very difficult to know some of those off-target effects upfront. And so what we're trying to do is screen the uh, libraries of available drugs, of known drugs, and try to identify what other indications could those drugs be used for. And I think a good example of this is the story, well, our co-founder, Alex Alex Parker, came up with in ALS and, and the drug that they identified, which is pimazide. That's an antipsychotic that's been around for about 50 years. It's known to act, I mean, without getting too technical here, like it's known to act on dopamine receptors in the brain, but it's a very, if I can use this term, it's a very dirty drug. So it has a lot of side effects. It has a lot of off-target effects and isn't usually well tolerated by patients at all because of those side effects. And it turns out what we think one of those side effects is, is that it's pimazide is acting 
on calcium channels at the neuromuscular junction. So not in the brain, but in the peripheral nervous system. And that it's that side effect, that that alternative mode of action that's benefiting ALS patients. So it's 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 hard to know all of what a drug's upfront or what a drug's off-target effects are upfront. And so by screening broadly, we're able to again, let the biology tell us what's working and what's not working. And then once we figure that out, we can work our way back and identify how those drugs are, are actually working. That is so cool. Why is this in vivo approach so kind of, I don't even know what the right word would be. Why is it more of an emerging type of science and not really kind of mainstream because it kind of sounds like a no brainer? Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I would definitely agree that that it's a no-brainer, and it is still an emerging science. And I think that part of this is that a lot of these animal models which we're using are not really mainstream, and that's that's the problem. Like, I come from the worm community; that that's my background, and I can tell you that the worm community is within the model organism space. I, I don't, I don't want to say it's looked down upon, but you know finding therapies using worms isn't the first thing that comes to mind when you think of drug discovery, right? But I think that there are more and more examples now of small, and I do specify small model organisms. So small model organisms like flies, like worms, like zebrafish, and even yeast to to rapidly identify therapies that because they give you, like there's a number of advantages that they have compared to some of the larger animal models like mice that you just don't have in the sense that from a time and cost standpoint, screening drugs in vivo or screening thousands of drugs in vivo in worms is very feasible. But doing so, testing thousands of drugs in mice, not only is that unfeasible from a time standpoint, but also from a cost standpoint as well. And I do think that this is a, a, a bit of an emerging space here. And there have been a number of examples recently, namely from uh, from Ethan Perlstein's and his team's work at Perlara, where they've been able to use small animal models using yeast and worms and flies to rapidly repurpose and rapidly identify new potential therapies for some ultra-rare forms of congenital disorders of, of glycosylation, PMM2 and NGLY1. I just met Ethan since Clubhouse came out and wow, what a brilliant and kind human being. I love what he's adding to the rare disease space too. Absolutely. He's, uh, he's, he's a really great guy and it's, we still chat regularly and we still work on uh, a number of projects and um, a, a lot of the work that he's done at Prolara has, has really kind of laid the groundwork for some of these small model organisms coming to light again. And I, I do think that, they're, that they are a true untapped resource in the, in the drug discovery space. There, there's a number of tools that we need for drug discovery, and, and these are really underutilized tools that I think have the potential for massive impact in rare disorders specifically. So the two biggest things, our main concerns in rare disease are time and money, I would say, right? Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> like, how does Medellis fit in to accelerate this and make them as affordable as possible? And why would one choose to go this route as opposed to maybe a gene therapy route or another type of route? That's a really interesting question. And with my work at Modellus and small model organisms and drug repurposing, I, I am partial to through the small molecule therapeutic approach. But truth is, like for a lot of rare disorders, it's really a one size fits all fits all problem or equation. And so being able to 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 leverage some of these different approaches complement in a complementary manner. So exploring drug repurposing or in vivo drug repurposing with small models, small animal models 
while at the same time approaching gene therapy uh, are two very complementary approaches and and gene therapy uh, we we know takes is you know more expensive is longer to to develop there's there's a number of other safety concerns which which come which may come with it uh, so but at least with with the drug repurposing route if if you can if you can pursue both options even simultaneously first identifying small molecules which can which can maybe treat the disorder or or you know mitigate symptoms r- related to a disorder while at the same time pursuing gene therapy approaches it certainly makes sense to to approach it like that like i i, I don't want to say that one approach is better than than a a different one but there's a number of tools in our in our arsenal in any rare disease therapeutic approach there's a number of tools which you have to to use to our advantage uh, but uh, and oftentimes it's a combination of some of those multiple tools which is going to give the best outcome so let's talk about cost how much does it cost for an advocacy group to join and have their disease looked at and how should a patient organization financially plan for something like this that really depends all of the the patient organizations that that we work with, yeah, it's all been a very customized approach. Um, that based on that specific d- disorder, and this call comes up through the feasibility process when we first when we first assess this, uh, as we try and at least try and estimate what the you know well, what does the worm stage look like, what does a fish what does a fish research project look like, and then try to estimate as well what do those next steps after that look like, and and based off you know therapeutic landscape or yeah based off what the, what does the therapeutic landscape the development landscape look like, what could we anticipate a regulatory pathway to look like or a regulatory strategy to to look like. Yeah, it's very difficult to, to to put to put a number on it. But the the way that we that we typically work with organizations in this space is through venture philanthropy or social impact investing. So I've heard it go by both names, um, but both terms are equally appropriate. Where I mean, yes, we we are a for profit company and we do work with nonprofits, and it, you know, it's still it still is a significant chunk of money to to raise for nonprofits, but. Any of the any of the work that that we identify, or any whether it's from an an IP, like we, we want this to be a pure partnership with our patient organizations, and and we see this as as you know we're in the same car, we're going down the same road, we're we're getting off at the same place, and and if Modalis is in the driver's seat, the patient organizations are in the passenger seat next to us, and so not only does a successful project look like with the therapy coming out the end of the uh, coming out the end of the pipeline. But as if there's any commercial windfall that results from eventual sale or licensing of those drugs that's shared back with the patient organizations or the foundations who supported the work in the first place. And, you know, we, we all we, we know that patient organizations and foundations do have, you know, do incredibly meaningful work and often and oftentimes struggle to fundraise for some of the really meaningful advocacy work that. That, that they do. And so we have embraced this, this approach of working with patient organizations and advocacy groups to, to not just have them have this project be a win-win where if there's a financial win, it's a good for us. If there's a therapy, it's good for the organization. But so it's a win-win-win all around. And, and, you know, it's a win for us is a win for the community. And, and I think that's what we're trying to build here and, 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 and have this, this really this collaborative spirit within the community where we can where we can benefit from from each other's work um and also and yeah as i said if there's any any successful fight commercialization event which come out comes out of this that's shared back with the families or with the organizations who supported this work in the first place 
I really appreciate your honest answer there. And it's something I've heard before from another biotech company, um, taking it kind of case by case and disease dependent. And you also touched on the collaboration and the sharing of information, which is which is something else I wanted to know about with Medellis and if you do that and how important that is to your organization or your company rather. I guess it depends what kind of where, where you're going for with uh, sharing of information. But as we see this as an organization, you know, we work on multiple disorders. We work on multiple diseases. Um, it, we cannot be the experts in every single one of them. Like we, we can't, we just cannot, but who are the experts with this? Well, the, the parents, the, their network of researchers, their networks of physicians, they are the experts in, in these disorders. Like if I wanted to know about CTNNB1, I would go to you, Effie. Like that's like I would ask, like, what is the reality? What what is needed by the community? What does the community need? What does an effective therapy look like? What what does a successful therapy or an improvement of quality of life mean? to you and being able to to leverage not just what we're bringing to the table here in terms of a scientific expertise, a really deep understanding of the genetics of the science that goes into drug development, but being able to work with the families as well to understand what's the reality of the community who are the clinical experts in this space? Who should we be speaking to um, to to better understand, you know, what is important to the community, to the patients, and being able to combine those those approaches together or those those resources so that it's really a community driven or community led drug discovery project that meets the needs of the community. Mm, brilliant. I love it. Do you have anything exciting that's happening right now or coming up or can you leave us with another success story? We have a, a number, a number of projects now, which are both coming on board, but also a number of uh, a number of our earlier projects, which are advancing to very, very exciting milestones. If I if I can if I can say that without divulging too too much information <laughs> here. So we are a we are a young company. Um, we've been around since uh, since 2018, so coming up on about three years now. But it's been uh, a whirlwind journey and a very exciting journey. And seeing this, and then we're really we're really eager to see how some of our early work is now coming to a stage where uh, we yeah we, we are looking towards regulatory or we are looking towards clinic and we are looking towards having an impact or moving our science out of the out of the bench and in, into the bedside where it's going to have a meaningful impact on patients. So, so we're we're really excited about that. Again, without getting too much into specifics, we're really excited about that. Um, we're we're constantly developing our platform to make the process more efficient and uh, to make it more efficient from both from a cost and time standpoint. As you mentioned, those are two of the key con con considerations in rare diseases, right? It's costs and time related to, to drug discovery. And so that's, we're always keeping an eye towards innovation, always looking to make the process more efficient. And one of the goals that we've set ourselves as an organization is to, what we want to do is get the process down to one year. So how can we get from bench to bedside in one year? So from project start to a drug in a patient in one year, and that's what we're working towards and keeping our eye towards innovation and, and making things more efficient as, as scientists, as innovators, like, yes, this is, we, we know that what we're doing is already, I, I would say is already faster than conventional drug discovery approaches, but it's still not fast enough. And especially with, with the realities of the rare of rare disorders, um, I, I don't think there's ever going to be something which is, you know, 
which is going to be immediate, but at least if we can get if we can get to something close to that, at, at least it's going to be a step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, one year made my eyes go wide. <laughs> for sure, <laughs> it's what we're working towards, and part of this comes towards how we're embracing technology and, and leveraging computational technologies to to help make our process more efficient. Part of you know who we are as a company, it's really this, uh, it's really this in vivo approach, and, and using small animal models, using letting it, it all comes down to letting the biology tell us what works and what doesn't work. What we're working towards is to making that process faster. So yes, we'll still let the biology tell us what works and what doesn't work. What avenues do we need to go down? What drugs are effective? But let's just get that faster. So how can the biology tell us faster? And so whether it's leveraging computational approaches, um, incorporation of new animal models into our pipeline, and by computational approaches, I mean you know predictive algorithms, things like that. Leveraging leveraging genomics data to, to to help identify potential therapies even faster. So all again with this eye towards making the process faster and more efficient, so we can, in a way, democratize this and take it to to a larger scale. If there's one thing that I'm very grateful for is for the collaborative nature of the rare disease com- community, and I don't think I've experienced that elsewhere because usually in science it's it's a very it's very siloed there's very little in terms of collaboration there's there's you know people do their own things in their own bubbles and 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 don't necessarily speak with with each other i've been in the rare disease community now for for a number of years and been involved with it and it's this collaborative spirit which is it's non-existent elsewhere in the scientific world, I think. And it's just something very unique because we are all working towards the same goal. We all have the same, we all have the same end, end game in mind. We, we're all working towards the same milestones. And so, and we know that we need to work together if we want to accomplish that. So whether it's anything from a research side, whether it's anything from a policy standpoint, from regulatory to, to clinical, like we're all working together, patients, or nonprofits, families, pharmas, biotechs, regulators, there's an incredible amount of collaboration in the space. And I think it's truly unique, but truly speaks to the spirit of the community. Mm. I loved all that. Amen to that, James. Well, I really appreciate you being my guest. I really appreciate your heart behind the work that you do. And I'm excited to share this information with all those highly motivated parents and patient advocacy groups that listen to this podcast. And yeah, tell everybody how they can find you and look to explore Modellus. Yeah, so um, I mean, we're we're relatively active on, uh, and I say relatively, we have a social media manager now, who's uh, Kayla, who's been able to to, to help us uh, be a bit more active on the uh, social links. So on Twitter, we're at Modellus Labs. We can always be reached through there. Um, I'm at James J Doyle on Twitter. Uh, otherwise, LinkedIn, um, James Doyle on LinkedIn, um, or Modellus on LinkedIn as well. Like we're. We're usually pretty responsive to that. Um, also, our website, modellus.ca. Um, so we, we are Canadian. If nobody has uh, caught, caught on to that for, for the time mm-hmm. being, we are a Canadian company. Uh, so you can reach us at modellus.ca, and uh, we have a contact form over there. And uh, always always happy to, to connect with new people and speak with, uh, and yeah, always learning more about, about rare, rare disorders. Awesome. Thank you so much, James. I'm really happy to be connected to you. And I learned so much today. I'm fascinated. So thanks for joining me as my guest. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much, Effie. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, 
please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. Ha 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 